Hi all, welcome back to Down to Brown. Today we're talking about attachment style. And maybe some of you have heard of this, some of you might not have. I feel like this is something that is coming up more and more. But I remember when I met it, it was life-changing. I think single-handedly this theory really shook my world in addition to all the laws that we benefit from, like gravity and such. But anyway, attachment theory is something that my therapist introduced to me when I was 25 and I was going through a breakup that really fit the mold looking back. But, you know, such is life when you have to learn it the hard way. So I remember I had this whirlwind romance with this guy and remember feeling like, gosh, all of this happened, this depth of relationship. And it had only been a month and a half or so. But in that time, we had dropped so many serious milestones into our conversations. We felt so close and intimate. And all of a sudden, he went cold. It made no sense to me. And so my therapist, who has been talked about much in this podcast, um, shout out to this OG who has forever guided me since I met her. She turned me to this book called Attached. At first, I was very skeptical. I was 25. I felt like books that were in the self-help section, that wasn't my genre. I didn't need it. I just needed Sex in the City because that was such a good example of how relationships should be done. In fact, you will rethink the whole carry and big relationship when you realize and read this book how important attachment theory is. So in essence, I don't have a PhD on this, so I'll just summarize what this book is about. This book is by Dr. Amir Levine and Rachel Heller. And basically they say, we talk about science in relation to food, exercise, etc. But how about relationships? And is there a scientific reason why you have certain relationships, negative, positive, safe, ones that make you feel really insecure. And their answer is, yes, there's a reason. And so they take all the scientific and psychological research um, and evidence that shows that there are three different attachment styles. There's anxious, who are usually folks that are preoccupied with their relationships and tend to worry about their partner's ability to love them back. Avoidance, are people who equate intimacy with a loss of independence and they're constantly trying to minimize closeness. And then there are the secure folks, which they sound like unicorns, but they are people who feel comfortable with intimacy and are usually warm and loving. And so this isn't to say that there's like a bad category and a good category, but they talk about how we experience ranges of each of these attachment styles and why you might see these things show up based on the way that you have cultivated experiences growing up um, in your romantic and platonic relationships and even just the marriage or relationship you've seen with parental figures or guardians. This is why I talked to Sabrina Lacani. She's a behavioral scientist who experienced her own tumultuous marriage and divorce with her best friend at the age of 30. And during her five-year healing journey, she had to rigorously deconstruct her belief system and transform her insecure attachment pattern. And she developed a solid understanding of attachment science especially the lesser known and researched patterns that apply to the South Asian community and other cultures that are influenced by collectivism. She realized that 
the healing journey took so long because she was going in on it blind without any roadmap. And that's why she's on a mission now to help her clients all over the world fast track their healing journeys. So she has a two week program that guides clients to shift their insecure attachment patterns and is incredibly passionate about this. I am so excited to invite Sabrina to Downer Brown. Sabrina, thank you so much for joining us. And I wanted to open with the question that I always start with. Where in the South Asian experience do you identify with? Um, okay, that's a really interesting question. You know, I'm of Indian Pakistani descent, and so that means my grandparents were Indian, my parents are Pakistani, and then I was born in Chicago. And I feel like that's part of the reason why I had to travel and live in so many different countries before I really found myself because every generation had their own migration and I had nowhere to migrate to. Um, <laughs> at least not not Super in search of a better life. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oh, I remember when I when I lived in India, my parents were like, what are you doing? Like your grandparents left that country and then we left Pakistan to give you guys a better life and you're going backwards. <laughs> I know it's so wild to me, even when I talk to people on the show, like, you know, on the podcast is some of us do work where our parents are like, you wanted to revisit your brownness? Like, I, you know, like this whole yeah. time you were either avoiding it or we grew up here, like this is shocking to me. And some of us are even going into business specifically to cater to South Asians, for example. So it's always an interesting journey, but, um, I think you're totally right. And like being able to see and connect with it all probably helped you a lot with your identity. Um, Yeah. And you know, what's really fascinating is that the third generation always romanticizes like that first generation's period and experiences. And so I saw that happening in myself a lot, you know, that's Mm. like I said, part of the reason why I lived in India is because I was trying to reconnect with those roots, whereas my parents were like, no, got to get out of here, like want something different. Yeah, definitely. What was it like having both the Pakistani presence and Indian presence? Because a lot of us are, which is ironic, like I was going to say that, you know, we might grow up with two parents from India, two parents from Pakistan, but we were all one at some point. So, Um, but I was curious, like, what is that like to hear both perspectives and both sides of that journey? Um, So honestly, I don't think I realized that there are two things until I was much older, you know, for example, when I, I was at a wedding a few years ago, and I saw my nanny, so my mom's mom, dancing, and I'm like, where, what are you doing? Like, where did you learn that? And she goes, we used to dance at all of our weddings when I was a kid. And I'm like, mom doesn't know how to move a bone. What are you talking about? (laughs) And so I started to piece together the narrative, right? That we were very cultural, very like dance and music oriented when we lived in India. And then when the migration happened, there was this idea that this is not a safe place to be yourself Mm. and to show that side. And so it's it's probably best not to attract any attention. And that's the environment my parents were born and raised in. So then when they came over to Chicago, I, I like singing and dancing was not a thing. Like it was not allowed. We watched all the Bollywood movies, but you were not allowed to be singing those songs or dancing to them so true. until much later in life when now it's a commonplace. And so now it's kind of like we're bringing and reintegrating the culture back into our family slowly. Definitely. And I really appreciate you opening with that background of yours, because I think it's so appropriate for our conversation about attachment, because so much of that 
how our family has cyclically gone through experiences, et cetera, and what they pass on. I mean, I'm preaching to the choir, right? Um, is what defines our attachment style and what we grow up with experiences we pull from. So, you know, I, this is a concept that really felt radically new to me when I first met it. I had never heard of it. And so I'm curious, you know, and like a lot of us are, you know, when I hear of other people talking about it, we similarly like, I didn't know about this as a kid, but I might've gone to therapy or seen something. So all that to say, what was your meet cute with attachment theory? Um, unfortunately it wasn't really a fun situation. I was, um, I was married to my best friend who I had known since I was a kid and uh, you know, I had expressed my concerns before we got married. I, I specifically had said, I'm really worried about the way that we, you know, deal with conflict. I, I'm scared that we're going to end up like your parents one day. And, you know, just for context, like both of our parents don't have great marriages and, and we both bonded when we were quite young on, on that particular topic of like, oh, your parents fight a lot. Mine do too. It's awful. You know, I hate being there. I hate, I hate trying to make things better. And so this is what had brought us together. It was like this shared dysfunction that we couldn't talk about with anybody else, right? The shame associated with it of airing your dirty laundry and that sort of thing. So here we are getting married the night before the wedding. And this is what I'm saying to him. And I said, I'm really scared that like, you know, we're going to become like two roommates living together. And that's not the kind of marriage I want. Um, and he said, no, don't worry, everything will be fine. Of course, we get married and that's exactly what happens. And we start heading down that path. And I had mm-hmm. said, if we start trekking that path, I'm going to be the first one to file for divorce because we have way too much going for each of ourselves to have a lifelong, like, whatever that is. Later, as I was Googling, I discovered that that's called a silent divorce where you live with, you know, your spouse, but you don't really have any emotional connection. You don't have any physical connection. For me, it just feels like death. Mm-hmm. And so when I started Googling more and more, I mean, we had already been through premarital therapy. We were going to therapy even after we got married and things just didn't seem to be going in the right direction. Yeah. So I started Googling and I'm like, I literally Googled family patterns of conflict, you know, and generational patterns of conflict. Cause that, that was my fear of like, we're going to turn into our parents. And that's when I came upon attachment theory, which is exactly oh that. <laughs> and so as I was reading it, it just became so clear. And at the time, you know, this was back in 2014, 2015, all of the mainstream literature on it said that if you're an anxious and an avoidant, you cannot have a great marriage. I looked around and like everybody in our families had the same pattern. And I'm like, how is this possible? Like, th- this is just crazy that I this, I'm, this is the first time I'm learning about it. Yeah. Um, and none of my therapists, you know, our premarital counselor, like nobody had mentioned this to us. Um, and so I'm oh, seeing it happen. Yeah. That, that was like the weirdest part is that nobody had mentioned it to us and that I had to kind of Google my way into it. Yeah. Thank God for Google then. Um, uh-huh. It's interesting. It's my way. Way. <laughs> You know, in some way tech, it can be bad, but in some ways it can save ourselves, I guess. But mm-hmm. what you described reminds me of taboo, where you like looked up everything except what the term was, and then you found <laughs> out the term, right? Um, but what's interesting to me is that what you described is not foreign. Like once you hear it, it's like, yeah, I've seen that plenty, that dynamic of anxious and avoidant. And especially um, 
that specific duo in our culture. And, um, I'm so curious why that happened. Like, why did that happen in our culture? You think that we see more of this in our maybe previous generations, hopefully we're interrupting it. But one of my theories, for example, is like literally Bollywood. So one of my theories is Bollywood has modeled a lot of that, like anxious, like the man chases comes on strong. And then they kind of don't show the marriage or when they do, it's sort of different. Um, there's a lot of mistaking, like Dave Das is my classic, like, what was I thinking for liking that movie? Cause there's so much of that unhealthy passion is love. Mm-hmm. Um, so that being said, I'm sure it's not just Bollywood. What do no. you think as an expert? <laughs> um, it's so funny. I, I like to say that I watched the movie Kuch Kuch Hotai one too many times. <laughs> and that's why I married yes. my best friend. <laughs> Unfortunately, like you said, they don't tell you what happens after you get married, (laughs) but this is exactly what happens. Um, You know, culture and like Bollywood definitely plays a role, but the biggest role is played by our parents. Um, The marriage that we observe most closely since we are born, even before we're born, is that of our parents. And that becomes our template, you know, for good and for bad. It's an unconscious template you are more likely to play out that same, you will take a role, like you will play your mom's role, your dad's role in certain situations. And so that's the biggest component. Another component is gender roles, right? So what are men like, don't cry. And like women are supposed to be, it's okay to be emotional because you're a woman and that sort of thing. So we naturally fall into these patterns without us even realizing it. That's so interesting. I like, so the, the, I, I'm thinking about this basically, like I, I transported it in my head because there was this time where I was with this guy that I was dating and he was sort of like almost weirded out by the way that I was taking care of him. And it was the way that my mom takes care of people and like me, where she'll ask you what your favorite meal is. She'll prepare it after seeing you for a while. She'll make sure she heats it up for you. And she's like, you sit down. I remember he was like, I'm okay. Like I can do it. And I was so hurt because I was like, Oh, you know, but I'm trying to like show affection and like show love. Uh But, Uh um, there are moments where you feel almost creeped out by the fact that you, you see yourself being your parent, one or the Mm -hmm. other in that moment. So are we just doomed then if we're, you know, we watch this relationship, you know, maybe where they don't work on that as much and they're not as aware of these attachment patterns and, how to interrupt those cycles. So what about our generation, which grows up with those types of modeling, you know, marriages and whatnot, what happens to us? Yeah, a lot of us do follow into their footsteps. And then, you know, the other part of that is that we accept marriages that are not fulfilling. They're not satisfying. They're, they're not meaningful. They, they start to break down. And if you look around, I mean, previous generations, that's what happened. It's, but then they stuck it out for probably two reasons. One is that women were not financially independent. So where were they going to go? Like their whole idea, if you talk, you know, if you talk to that generation, they're all like, well, on the whole, men are like this. So even if I left your father or I left this man, I will probably end up in a similar marriage again. So what's the point? Mm-hmm. There is no like, you know, there is no like, I'm going to create a better marriage because I know that's possible. That's all they knew. Whereas we don't have, we have other choices, right? One is women are financially independent and you can make a different decision. 
Um, and oftentimes you see that women are the ones that are ending relationships or marriages because it just gets too, to be too much. Um, you know, you're just emotionally so hurt and um, like dissatisfied with how things are that you're willing to go through the pain of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, healing your attachment style. And they're often the ones that are discovering what attachment styles are. Totally. The scariest part too, is sometimes where if, and unintentionally, sometimes parents thinking that it is the normal way to relationship. So even when, and what I mean by that is even when maybe the child or someone else even is like, this is happening, there might be this feedback of, well, that's how it is. Like the woman Mm -hmm. has to sacrifice, et cetera. So, um, I know they don't mean to like ruin our lives by saying that, but that's what they grew up with. And they absolutely, yeah, that's all they know. I mean, I heard that in, you know, many years after my divorce, I went back and asked my mom, I'm like, mom, remember that time I came home crying? I was so hurt when you said, our doors are closed for for you. I was like, Mm. why would you do that? Like, that was so painful. I was already kind of feeling, you know, like my home wasn't my own home. And then your home, like, wasn't welcoming. Why did you do that? And she said, that's because that's what my mom said to me. You know, and so you see these patterns because they were trying to keep the marriage together. And she said, this is how I've learned to like kind of force the marriage to work. And I said, well, you know, that was really hurtful. And of course, she realizes it now, like that that probably wasn't helpful. And um, our generation is different. We have different choices and that she didn't raise me to just just take it. (laughs) Totally. I'm, I'm so sorry that you had to go through that hurtful experience. And I'm, I'm glad it sounds like you have resolved things with your mom since. Yeah. But yeah, it absolutely. takes a lot of courage to take that step, especially when you're hearing that from your family too. What mm-hmm. compelled you to follow? Because I'm sure it wasn't like I Google searched attachment and therefore I'm sticky, right? Like there has to be a lot of other emotional <laughs> factors that gave you the courage to do this. What did? Um, so one of the things was, being so um, privy to my parents' issues, right? Since I was a kid, like I was mediating their marriage when I was 10. Um, I knew everything that was ever like an issue between the two of them. These are things I shouldn't have known, but because I knew them, I could see them playing out in my marriage. And my subconscious mind went like, oh my God, I've already watched this movie. I don't want to watch it again. I don't like how it Mm -hmm. goes. So you know, that was one. And the other thing was, I kept imagining how I would answer my children's questions if they asked questions like I did when I was a kid. Was dad always like this? Why did you marry him if you knew all this? Why did you decide to have kids with someone that, you know, you didn't feel? I mean, now my parents' relationship is great, but it's not a relationship I would want. Um, Mm -hmm. But when I was younger, and I saw my mom hurting and crying. And so these are the questions I asked her. And her response was, well, where was I going to go? But I recognize that there's no way I would have had that response, right? I have a great education. I am financially independent. And I live in the United States. Like, what is my reason for not trying to change my life and create something better? Wow. Yeah, that's so true. And again, like, I think I can't underestimate your bravery in that situation. But to your point, it sounds like you felt like you at least had the belief in yourself like I can be set up in some way if I take this move um where you can do this independently um and you're right like I'm sure not all 
parents, and I'm not going to generalize, and I, I know we're not generalizing that all South Asian parents have like messed up dynamics, right? Like they're like anyone else, there are some, and then there are some that are great and healthy. Um, and I think it's interesting what we, I'll speak for myself, is like there with our parents, eventually what you said resonated where, you know, they're good now but there's a lot of hiccups that go in. And so I, even now I tell, like, people ask me, I'm like, my parents are happy now. Like they're content. I don't know if they were meant to be together, like as soulmates, um, but they've made it work. And I've seen that. And I, and now like the quality is like, okay, like I, my takeaway is that like, you can make it work. And like, I appreciate that. But um, was it the way that I would want to model that for, to your point, kids, or even like the way I want to find my partner? Probably not. So it's interesting because some people do say like, I've seen my parents and like, I want a marriage just like that. Like, I, it's just such a, like, it's hard to find someone because I just want to find someone as good as my mom or dad. Um, I don't feel that way. But at the same time, then it's like, what is our example as South Asians? If we haven't grown up with that, like, what do we aspire to then? Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got a couple of really, really good points that uh, I just want to reflect on. Um, you know, I remember when I was struggling in my marriage and my mom was like, don't worry, it'll work out. And I was like, how do you know? And she goes, look at me and dad. We worked it out. And I'm, and one of the things I would say to her is, mom, I don't have 30 years. Like she got married mm-hmm. when she was 17. Okay. And um, I, I'm like, I'm already, tw- so I was 27 when I got married. And now I'm almost like I'm 35. So, you know, if I were to get married again, I don't have 30 years to put into a marriage to make it good. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and, and what she wasn't recognizing was right from her perspective, like you, she had me when she was 18. So it was like a child having a child. Like she has no recollection that like, I've seen all of the terrible days they've had together. It's yeah. not like I wasn't born or I wasn't there or that I just came into their life now. So exactly what you're saying is like, I didn't want to imprint that those memories into my children's minds, because if I know better, I need to do better. Um, totally. So not to yeah. mention to your point, they're growing up individually as they parent, which is sort of dangerous too, right? Like there are moments that I'm so not dangerous. proud of in my twenties, or even when I'm 18, like, can you imagine if I like pass that down to an impressionable child? Um, so I think it's, you know, that's where I also have compassion because our parents didn't really have a choice at that point. And some of those things we can't reverse, um, because of where they grew up, how they grew up and what time, but you know, one of the things I realized too, that I haven't done is also set the foundation of what is attachment theory. So I know I got excited and jumped right into it, but if you had to explain to a dummies 101, especially considering we did our like warm up of how this can show up in South Asian culture, what are the attachment um, styles in summary? So the best way to figure out like your attachment style in your current relationship is look at how you do conflict, right? So there, there's two major insecure types and then there's a secure type. Let's just talk about the insecure first because they're more identifiable. So there'll be the anxious person that will like have to resolve things right away, need to talk about things like a hundred times. Um, some t- oftentimes we'll get loud or we'll do things for, um, attention because they, their greatest fear is abandonment or isolation. And that's not to say that the other person doesn't have that fear. It's just deeper within their psyche. So they're not as aware of it. 
their, the, the avoidance side, their greatest fear is uh, losing their autonomy or being controlled or manipulated in some way. And so that person tends to check out, like limit those conversations. Um, they might even have difficulty accessing like childhood memories because they, they suppress them like so deep into their psyche because it's so painful for their nervous system to bring it back up. Um, so they tend to be like fiercely independent. They feel like they can figure everything out on their own. The idea of needing someone is painful for them. And what about the ideal scenario? Is there hope? <laughs> so secure, <laughs> yes. You can start off as anxious or avoidant and move towards being securely attached. And so it comes down to in every conflict situation, asking yourself, is this a secure or an insecure response? Because by that point, it doesn't matter if you're anxious or avoidant, they're both insecure. So it's like, you know, pick your evil. <laughs> um, but if you're not moving towards securely attached, then you're not really changing any patterns. You're not really uh, using conflict to rewire your system and to help yourself learn how to trust yourself and trust others, well, especially your partner. If you can't trust your partner, right? That was my thing in my marriage. I'm like, mm -hmm. Well, he's an avoidant and that means he doesn't trust me. I can't make him trust me. But like, if you can't trust someone you married, then like, who can you trust in the world? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's fundamentally the person you want to trust if you know, everyone else you can't. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so in your program that you do now, you do some great work helping other folks identify this and find out for themselves what this means for them. And you promise that you're going to be able to help them within two weeks. And so that's a yeah. big promise. And how do you Huge. do this? And yeah, like how does how does this all happen, this magic? So the background is it took me five years to figure out what needs to happen in order <laughs> for me to heal. And I look and after I went through that, I'm like, wow, I'm so exhausted from doing all this work. And then, you know, I had a few friends and they're like, Well, what if like what about everybody else in the world that has an anxious or an avoidant attachment? Like, how do you expect them to get there? And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I don't expect them to go through a five-year journey like I did. You really have to have some like, you know, you really have to like be committed and like not have other things like children in your life and all this other stuff to be able yeah. to dedicate that. And they're like, well, you're going to have to do something to make it better for other people. You, you figured all this out. You spent so many years collecting all these research studies and reading everything and, you know, going through all these different therapies. Like, don't you feel, you know, you have some part to play in this and, and that's when it started to click in my mind of like okay there, there is this element of like I need to help people heal in a different way and bring the capacities or the modalities together that I had to go and search for all over the world literally live in like five different countries um, to piece this together and so that's why we've created patterns depressants is because it brings together um, the cognitive element which is like rewiring your thought processes. But you know, many of people that are listening will, will realize, okay, I know that I'm anxious. I know what, I, what a secure person would do in this situation, but I still can't do it. And I don't know why. And, and the, they can't do it is because those patterns are so deeply ingrained in our bodies, right? So your mind is, is a connection with your, your brain and your body, it has to be reconnected. And so that's why we do somatic therapy as well in patterns of presence. And so we target the brain and the body together in a two-week program. And that's why we're able to bring about such a big shift 
Um, Because it's not just teaching you. It's not just like memorization. It's not like, okay, this is what I'm going to say or do differently. It's like literally feeling different in their body. That is such a good point. And, you know, I'm both, I'm still fascinated by it. So I want to dig into it a little bit more. But I remember when my therapist who just adore them to death because they're the ones who introduced me to the book attached and changed my life. So what you said in my twenties, um, worked on it, like, as if it was like my side graduate degree, um, (laughs) with her for my own love life. But one of the things she would tell me whenever I was like hopeless, like I keep doing this thing where I get anxious because he didn't text me back or something. Right. Um, she was like, these are cognitive wirings that literally need to like a muscle be worked out until they fire differently so Mm -hmm. immediately it won't work but of course the more practice you get and one day it'll just fire naturally in that way and you're going to be able to do this much easier and I realized after like similarly five six years that happened over time not that I'm perfect or healed but you know my partner will attest to that um Mm -hmm. but I am curious how you physically do that with people you you mentioned somatic what is that like because I'm imagining like nine perfect strangers where they like sit in the grave and they're like literally feeling it you know I'm sure you don't do that yeah no it's all virtual thankfully so I do the cognitive part through the interactive journaling so through their journaling I'm able to track their mind right so I guess what I didn't mention in the beginning was that I'm a behavioral scientist I decode people's like thought patterns and understand their decision making on a subconscious level. So I understand what's going on. so humble not to lead with that, (laughs) by the way. (laughs) You know, it's been like a a blessing and a curse for me because when I was going through my own healing process, I I felt like I was even more critical towards myself because I could see the thought patterns. I knew what was going on and I still couldn't (laughs) stop it. So, um, you know, at that point, I'm like, okay, clearly there's something wrong with me because I, like, I know what I'm doing. I'm still doing it wrong because, and I'm, I'm like going right in that direction where I shouldn't be going. So, um, but the way that somatic therapy works is through the breath. And this is what my business partner, Zamir, works with. You know, he does a, a modal, modality called compassionate inquiry. And it was developed by Dr. Gabor Mate, who is like a leading global trauma expert. And it is similar to CBT or like traditional therapy. And then it differs in the way that it guides you back into your body and it uses the breath to help anchor you. And you become much more aware of the sensations in your body and what they're telling you. Mm-hmm. And so it's like a whole new world that opens up because you're like, oh, I didn't know that I'm constantly getting information about what, how my mind is thinking and perceiving this uh, from my body. Right. So, for example, if there's anxiety or if there's like, you know, your stomach churns or this stuff is happening all the time, but we're just Mm -hmm. not paying attention to it, nor are we linking them to our thought patterns. You know, like there's so much that goes on in the subconscious mind. The moment you encounter conflict, your mind is linking it back to hundreds of different times you've encountered conflict that Mm -hmm. it is relating it to. And, And so your mind is actually making you believe that it's going to have the same outcome. You know, I'm going to feel terrible. This is going to hurt. This is like, this is not what I want. I need to do this to defend myself or protect myself. Like you go into this kind of, um, you know, fight and flight mode, right? Because your survival instincts come online. Mm-hmm. I, and, I really appreciate that. Sorry, go ahead. And so we fight with our partners 
as if we're out in the jungle. Like we are literally on, like doing what we would need to do to survive. Which is wild because obviously we're never in that situation. And um, fight or flight, I remember learning, it was like, it's as if you're a gazelle, you know, reacting Mm -hmm. to a lion coming to hunt you. But if you do that every time, you're like my boss emailed me. Um, Mm -hmm. And they just said like, hi, do you have a minute? And like, I suddenly feel like I'm a gazelle running away from a lion, right? That's so unhealthy. So I can't imagine, yeah, like in the, it's almost like you can't help it. And one of the things that like is really terrifying to me is that sometimes what I learned, you can correct me, like this is all like me just as a amateur student, but you can feel like you're almost recreating without knowing you're recreating the dynamic between your parents. And in a way you're finding the person who's like your mom or dad, whoever that person's, you know, like whatever role that person plays. Um, and you don't realize. And I started mm-hmm. to see that as I, you know, started to reflect more and more and mature in this learning, um, mm-hmm. which is so weird and Freudian. Mm-hmm. Do you well, deal with this at all? <laughs> all the time. So yeah. but there's a link there. There's a deeper link here, right? Like, why do we do that? We do that because there are unmet needs and wounds from not getting what we needed when we were a child. So our subconscious mind comes up and, and is asking for those needs to be met. And the moment we we perceive like they're still not going to be met because they haven't been met all this time. Um, we, we lash out, we get loud or we check out. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I'm technically recreating my father or my mother. What I'm actually doing is recreating the relationship with those unmet needs. Interesting. That is so helpful mm-hmm. because I think people typically, even like in the never have I ever season two, right? Um, there was this cute moment where one of the characters is like, I should be dating people like my dad and not like my mom. And I thought it was really sweet that they even approached this topic um, because I wish I had grown up with more shows trying to demonstrate that. But to your point, it's not so much the exact person, but the need that you're trying to fulfill, which is mm-hmm. wow. Thank you for teaching me that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. as you're working with South Asian women and men, um, I'm really curious, like, what are the types of situations you typically encounter? Like, if you had to say, like, these are some of the kind of main themes I tend to see, and not to take away from people's individuality, but I'm sure there are some common tropes that you're finding. Um, Yeah. Are you able to share any of those? And like, what typical kind of trends you see plague our communities when it comes to attachment relationship? Yeah. So I think one of the things that is kind of more specific to our South Asian community that I see much more than we would in other communities, perhaps, is um, a lack of healthy boundaries. And that creates a lot of shame and guilt, right? So the children don't feel comfortable or safe. I want to, I'm putting it in quotes because yes, physically they're safe, but emotionally we, we often don't feel safe to explore who we really are and express who we really are. Um, especially when our preferences or choices differ from our parents. So for example, like moving out, living away, um, you know, it could start as early as like going away for college or um, not wanting to live together as a joint family system or, um, you know, who they marry and and, who they're interested in dating and, and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of like lack of approval to just be yourself. And so people get stuck They're Like there's a lack of individuation where they get stuck because they just end up doing what their parents want them to do because they don't want to feel the guilt that um, is required 
to break away and become their own person. Totally. Are, are, and specifically, are there any nuances, especially, I mean, we tend to generalize in our communities right now, we're still transitioning to it. Basically embracing like the concept of love is not just between man and woman. Like we also like need to, you know, be inclusive of our LGBTQ community. And I can only imagine how much more challenging it is, even as someone who has investigated my own sexuality as, you know, being able to take those messages from that we've grown up with um, and only understanding what it means to sacrifice and to do these things, the boundaries between a masculine and feminine dynamic. So I'm, I'm really like interested in hearing, like, is there anything that you see, especially as you work with your LGBTQ communities too, in your um, workshops? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're, you're absolutely 100% right. Like the stigma is strong. It is um, maintained. And, you know, the more that we do these people pleasing or family pleasing behaviors and, um, you know, and then we justify it, right? Like, oh, I don't want to rile them up. I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. What we don't realize is that we're not being compassionate with ourselves and our own, we're not being authentic with our own experiences. And so all of that gets even deep, more deeply suppressed and, and you move uh, further and further away from being your true authentic self. Right. And the dissonance feels more impossible to live with, especially when we are now multiple identities, like coming to the States and trying to incorporate but all of those. And I think there can be such a painful coming out, like, and I use that term broadly in the sense for South Asian individuals of our generation and even past or even future is just doing such like I feel like Gen Z is doing so much better than millennials millennials might be doing a little bit more than you know the previous generation so you know this coming out of like who we are um do you feel like this dissonance has created some of the problem uh you know like of being your authentic self and feeling that fight all the time of like can I be can I even bother to can I even dare to think I could be different that distance, does that create some of the conflict uh, that you see in attachment styles? So yeah, absolutely. What I want to do, um, draw attention to is like that distance, that internal conflict is very normal. We are all supposed to go through it mm-hmm. and we're supposed to come out the other end, breaking free from what our past. Yeah. Um, if you get stuck in that internal conflict, that's where all the stuff happens where you're just like, I'm not being true to myself. I'm just people pleasing, you know, like, but they're also not happy and they're still complaining and how much more can I give and that sort of thing. So we're all supposed to go through it. The difference is that the content changes for each generation, right? Mm. And so for our generation, it might be more focused on like um, sexual preferences or orientation and things like that. Whereas for the previous generation, it might be like, you know, wanting to come to America. And, and maybe yeah. the rest of the family didn't think that was such a good idea or, or not wanting to come and having to come because everybody else had emigrated. So like, there's always that internal conflict of do I do what I want to do or do I w- do what my family expects me to do? But the, the content and the narrative shifts with each generation. Thank you for that. I'm actually, I'm going to have a very good talk with my dad after this because that's a very yeah. good point about, you know, we think of um, sometimes it's easy to think that we are the only ones who are going through this individuation struggle, not struggle in general, right? Our parents have, I feel like my parents have struggled more than I have um, in coming to a new country, but 
I always assume our generation is the only one who's thought about that individuation experience of like who we really want to be. And so um, very good reminder. I actually um, saw my parents go through it when I was 12 and we broke, you know, my, my parents were in business with my dad's eldest brother and, and then they separated. And so I watched that happen. That was actually mm. the transition of my parents kind of becoming their own adults. Um, because I remember how painful it, I literally saw my dad cry, uh, you know, uh, on several days. And so that was his individuation transition. And I remember what he said to me at that time, he says, you know, the price for freedom, there is a price for freedom, and it's quite high. But if you're not willing to pay that price, the price is even higher to stay into the, whatever situation you're in. So he like at that point realized, and this was when I was 12. So my dad was like, 30 he's like my age now like 35 36 right he's like you need to be free it's more important to be free than to make a whole lot of money and all that other stuff in life um and so when I was going through my transition I actually thought back to that now that gave me a lot of comfort even though I spent nine months like not talking to my parents not seeing them I just needed to be on my own but what did bring me comfort is knowing that this is an individuation process and my parents went through it in their own way. Absolutely. No, thank you for sharing that. In terms of even like the way family responds, it, it not just parents. Like I feel like there's this game I like to play a little bit of like, you know, how people go saboteur, like the voice of the sabotage kind of thing in your head. Yeah. Um, yeah. The voice of the like auntie in my head, like our uncle who says the thing that you're like, you already know, like you have to yeah. prepare a comms plan for when you get that question. So um, one of them is like, oh, it's so easy to blame your problems on your parents. Or, you know, at least we stuck through and compromised. You guys don't know what it is to sacrifice. Um, you're expecting too much from your marriage. It's only a fraction mm-hmm. of your happiness. So when you hear these types of things, I'm sure your clients have also shared, like, these are some of the messages I hear at home. How do you respond to that in a way that is um, helpful for us to unlock in that cognitive and somatic way? Yeah. So one of the things I try to do is ask them, like, okay, if someone is saying, like, you're expecting too much, like, let's say you're, you're, you're struggling in your marriage, and let's like go back to my situation, right? And my mom says, you know what, you're just expecting too much like you just need to figure out how to make it work I try to get them to think what is my mom's greatest fear in the situation and so they'll I'll get there right away oh she's scared you're gonna get divorced okay if I get divorced what does that mean about what kind of mother she is oh that means she's a bad mother she didn't do the right thing yes bingo because that actually illustrates her insecurity in this situation and what she is trying to avoid mm-hmm all and of then, us are just running away from fear. Oh yeah, absolutely. And our own insecurities. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. We're just like adults running around in circles, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. In that way, so, it's almost like children are more brave than us. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because they're more in touch with their authentic selves. Mm-hmm. And that's actually what we need to get back to. Is that some of the work that you guys do, like inner child work or inner child voice? Absolutely. Yeah. Inner critic. Yeah. And you get to understand what your authentic self sounds like, um, where your inner critic comes from, how it develops, how it got to be so strong and Mm -hmm. what it's scared of. Totally. How um, is there an example you can give us of like a client or, um, you know, a general story of like a typical journey that you've seen a client go through? 
Um, so there's no really typical journey. There's like commonalities, I would say, right? So there's a progression of kind of where is this person on in their level of development? So we, um, through the interactive journaling, I get to know them really well. Like they become my pen pals. We, mm. We're journaling back and forth every day for 14 days. And I think part of it is because I've always wanted pen pals when I was a kid. <laughs> so that's probably why I created the program this way. Um, but what I really do like to do is like go back to some of the earlier writings in the, you know, in the second week. And I say, you see how you were thinking like this? This is probably, where do you think it kind of came from? Because now they're much more knowledgeable, right? They've gone through the program for two weeks. They've read a bunch of things. They've watched a bunch of videos. They've, they've really developed in the two weeks. So there's a couple like major checkpoints, right? So most often everyone has like a mother and a father wound. Like in, in one way or another, our parents just didn't come through for us for, for many reasons. Um, and what unfortunately happens in the child's mind is that when your parents are, for example, if your parents are like my parents where they were children, raising children, um, mm -hmm. they're obviously not gonna know how to come through for you because they're like barely understanding themselves, right? How much right. on themselves do you think they, they would have done? So what happens is the child doesn't say, the child mind doesn't say, oh, my parents are just not emotionally mature to understand that I need comfort and I need like to feel protected right now. What your child mind will do is make a story about you. So say, oh, maybe I'm just not lovable. Maybe I'm not important to my parents. Maybe I wasn't worthy. You know, maybe um, I didn't measure up. And so these are the types mm -hmm. of stories that kind of your, your child mind develops as a result of not getting your needs met. And then it just spirals from there, right? It reinforces the same belief through confirmation bias. It looks to confirm that with partners and relationships and friendships and career. And it plays out in all these different ways if you're not conscious. Totally. That That's very interesting. And I have a question to click into that a little bit more. Um, corporate buzzword. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I was like, click down. No, let's double click. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> back on that topic um, so, um this assumes the luxury of time and maybe this is um and you can correct me if I'm wrong so what I mean by that is so on one hand we're saying yeah sometimes you get you start to do these steps romantically or with building a family too early um that's one point then we also talked about how you know it took us a lot of time to work on this and still it's a lifelong journey to understand this relationship with ourselves so second point but then that being considered what if you you know want to start building a family have kids etc does this mean we have to do like when are you ever ready to take on that responsibility if for every stage of you know self-discovery dating marriage um, we, there's so much time that needs to go into invest and make sure that you're ready. Then I feel like that could also fall into this trap of like, are you ever ready? Like, what if you pass on your like baggage and your damage, right? Like to, and especially for us who are having kids later and later in life, does that resonate? Like, does that mean that we all have to do like a 10 year PhD in attachment theory? And then we can't, you know, then we can start to even date. So I tell all my clients, even like if and when I decide to have a child, my child will be traumatized. I, despite all that I know and all that I've worked on, there will be moments, there will be times where I don't do it the right way. And of course, I'm going to do my best just like our parents did. But my child is going to have their own journey of like discovering like, hey, mom, like you weren't good at this, like you sucked at this, you know, 
Um, and then they're going to have to go through a process called reparenting, which is what we take mm-hmm. all of our clients through. So all of our parents did the best that they could at the time with what they had. And that's what's you know amazing about just humanity in general is that we all try our best. But of course, there, it's not perfect. And so you have to take the responsibility of becoming your own mother and father and reparenting yourself. Now, if you have reparented yourself, you are in a much better position to be a great parent to a child. Um, and, and sometimes people do this after they have a child because they realize, oh, there's a gap here. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Or like, I still have mixed feelings about my own childhood and that sort of thing. Um, and, and sometimes they can be really hard on themselves if they haven't done this work. Um, but you have to remember that every child and every human being will have their own journey. And that is just the natural course of life. So it sounds like this is essentially a, you know, kind of Lion King circle of life. Like we go through our own, you know, as a child parenting, then we challenge it. And to your point, like you just said, um, we have to find a way to reparent ourselves. But in that process, we question everything about our parents and expect almost perfection, right? Like, I think I, I know I went through a phase where I was like, they needed to be perfect because growing up, you think that they're perfect and you start to learn they're not. And then you're like, well, that's not fair. Um, and then as you get older, you're like, shit, who is perfect? Like no one knows anything. Um, so we, I remember like someone, um, was telling me about their partner and they were like, well, they never grew up with conflict. So the parents were really careful about not screaming or yelling in front of their kids or fighting in front of their kids, even arguing. And they grew up with parents who did get into heated arguments, but would resolve it. Um, but as a result in their relationship, she's like, you know, this person doesn't know how to have conflict with me. So in a way, it's like also a problem because they don't even know how to have conflict. And I'm yeah. like, you know, if I was a parent, I'd be like so proud that my child has never seen the conflict. But then I'm also screwing them over. So like, in essence, we're going to have to suck it up, right? That we're going to screw over our kids. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, but you know, you did bring up a good point is how you do conflict is really important because that's what wires their nervous system. And that's mm-hmm. the thing that you're passing down, right? It's these patterns of behavior because yeah. we, we are responding to our own nervous system needs. If my, if my nervous system feels fried the moment that there is a potential conflict, I'm not going to do conflict really well. Yeah, definitely. I like that because even like for these things about like, you know, when people go to therapy or like couples therapy, for example, like rather, maybe it's more about the, um, teach a man to fish type thing is how you conflict should be worked on versus specific, like this person hogs the sheets and this is a problem, right? It's like more how, like, I think that is how you probably give people the wheels to solve any problem then. Yeah, if you want to know the health of any relationship, just closely observe how they do conflict. Very interesting. Thank you. Um, Everything no, else, guess- like the flowers, the chocolates, the gifts, none of that matters. Yes, that's true. That's very true. Um, I've also wondered how intimacy, one thing we haven't talked about is intimacy. And this is something that's super taboo in our communities as well. So it doesn't help that like already we can't talk about relationships openly you can't talk about problems or relationships, and then you can't talk about your sex life. Um, and not that I'm going to ask you now about that, um, but, but I'm curious, like, how has, how, what, how does intimacy interact with attachment theory? And especially in our communities, what have you found um, 
serving as almost like the hurdles for our, you know, the women and men in the South Asian community when it comes to having a healthy relationship with even just physical needs? So um, one of the things is that many times we don't know how else to feel connected unless it's through the physical, like through sex, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the only time sometimes like a lot of avoidance will, um, will actually feel connected to their partner and, and will make themselves vulnerable in that situation. But in any other situation, they're like, no, thank you. So, yeah. so, so it, it is, it holds a really special space. Um, but then simultaneously, what also happens is that if there is constant and frequent conflict that is unresolved, um, avoidance will tend to shut down and not want to engage in physical intimacy, which, mm. which the anxious person generally takes as a rejection yeah. and not understanding what's going on. Um, so like, you'll fight, but then there won't be any makeup sex. And so then it doesn't make any sense for them. And so then they'll be like, oh, well, I'm rejected. You don't want me. This isn't working. And then they'll criticize uh, their partners, which is going to make push them further and further apart. And that's really how yeah. the relationship breaks down. If you look at from like a sex intimacy type of um, angle, right? It, it's breaking down anyway, but it comes to light when there is no, even they're not sleeping in the same bed. Um, again, it kind of goes back to like the silent divorce that we talked about early on. This is why like there's always so much distance and space between those people because there's no resolution. There's no way they don't feel safe with each other. Yeah, I mean, I'll repeat it again, but I feel like if it's so hard to talk about emotional conflict, like I can't imagine in our communities how hard it is if that's the, you know one of the root of the problems in the relationship and because um, we also see, speaking of modeling, is like you see relationships where there's no physical touch whatsoever. Um, mm -hmm. And that can pose, like, I'll speak for myself, but I, I have also struggled with like, what does physicality mean to me? How much do I need it? How much do I not? Should I feel guilty? Um, because you see very different modeling, like in my house, no touching. Like, in fact, like even like a cute joke, like even if like my mom is trying to put her hand over, you know, my dad when we're taking a photo, He'll be like, no touching in front of the kids. And they'll be like, haha. But it's also like, damn, I did not see my parents interact one bit, except when maybe she's putting a band-aid on my dad or like, you know, um, my dad is helping her up or something. So yeah, it's kind of like a weird way also then to engage. Whereas in American culture, it's like this over-sexualization that you see. Um, so it's just kind of an interesting tension sometimes. And it's not just the American culture, but we see it in Bollywood movies. And I'm just like, how does yeah. this relate? Like, why? We're not, we're not one in the same, you know? Totally. And I grew up it, in the same way. Like, we'd yeah. have to, like, teach my dad how to, like, put his hand around mom when we're taking a picture. And I remember doing that when we were young. Um, as if, like, they didn't touch each other before to, like, bring us to the world. I know. What did they like, do, right? <laughs> true though and some of my American friends who've watched Bollywood they're like this is really intimate because they won't kiss on the lips but they'll do like everything else like ch kiss their mm -hmm. bosom and like grab mm -hmm. their waist and um it's like really strange messages you see that are they don't they don't fit so mm -hmm. then I feel like often like at least I was like what do I do like literally physically in like relationships and, you know, what I've also noticed is like this emphasis on developing our intellect and developing like ourselves intellectually, if you're, you know, our careers and that sort of thing. 
there is a de-emphasis on the body and like what feels mm-hmm. good to me? What do I need? How does this feel? Um, you know, starting to like wonder and ask yourself and be in tune with your body is like such a foreign concept. Totally. Um, which is strange because you know, India is the birthplace of yoga. And but we see we yeah. seem to have lost a lot of those teachings and the wisdom of the breath and the body and and how important that is for a healthy life. That's and so, so that's true. also what we reintegrate back into, you know, our clients' lives is, is self-care. What does that look like? What what that's one of my questions in week one is like, what does your self-care routine look like? And oftentimes they're like, huh? What like what's that? <laughs> Yeah, I know what is self-care in the Indian household or South Asian household. Yeah. <laughs> or we've only seen men do it, some of us. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, one of the things I wanted to ask you too is have you been able to have a chance to, and let me know if this is too personal, but like catch up with your ex and talk about some of these learnings that you both have had since um since you mentioned you had a big learning after the marriage and, you know, it was rather young that you guys got together. So was that, that healing between you two? So I have no reason to believe that he's had a similar path or learning or whatnot, because that, you know, he blocked me right after we got divorced and actually it was a really big blessing. And um, it's been five years since we've gotten divorced. I had to like do the math. Yeah. It's been five years since we got divorced and I, I have no idea what his path and his journey has been like. I, I hope that it, it involved a lot of good learning. I know that he at least knew that he had an avoidant attachment style. Um, how did you end up making that closure for yourself? Because sometimes this does happen. Like this is the reality. Like the person will block you or like you'll never get that like final yeah. like moment where you sit on the bench and talk like in 500 days of summer. So what happens then? <laughs> Yeah, so I think like, um, you know, needing closure or needing connection with the other person for closure is a, like a misnomer or like a misunderstanding of the whole concept. I think the closure has to happen within yourself. And once you become securely attached, you have everything you need inside of you. There is actually no real need to reach out and like be on the same page because you're not on the same page. And, you know, and, and that's not to say that I don't have like other exes that I am in. I'm not, you know, I have ex-partners that I am in touch with and we have really great uh, friendships now. Um, So it could go either way. But if someone is not able to be open and receptive and in in touch, like we have to respect that boundary Mm. and and be able to source what we need within and and we can't. So I'm living proof of that. Right. I really struggled with it initially the first like 18 months. I, I couldn't believe that. I mean, this was a third of my life, right? We had known each other for so many years. We dated for seven years on and off. Like we were best friends, um, traveled together and then got married, had this humongous wedding. And two years later we got divorced. And so everyone's like, oh, you just need to move on. I'm like, how do I, how do you move on from a third of your life? Like, yeah, you know, it was such a big chunk. But um, after going through so much healing, I did get to a place where I, I am able to move on. I'm able to create my life the way I want to. And, and I appreciate and respect the place that our relationship had in my life because I know that it allowed, it forced me to grow. Honestly, like mm-hmm. when you get blocked, you're forced to look inside because there's nowhere else to look. Um, totally. And, I, and I, I feel like that was a really big blessing. Absolutely. It sounds like you've really gotten to a place where you can honor what it was um, in your life. And I think to your point, like one thing I read earlier today was 
sometimes when we have to, you know, when you get blocked or if you are the one who's blocking, it's okay for people to make those boundaries. And it's not always toxic to do that. Like we always mm-hmm. assume the person who blocked, I'm not justifying either way, but it's just like, I like the piece that you made with it is if that's what that person needed, then that's what they needed to move on or move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, not move on because I think I like your point of like, it, you pay homage to what it means in your life. Um, mm-hmm. but then you move forward into a different direction. Mm-hmm. And I think anytime, um, I was actually thinking about this today is like, anytime something is prefaced with just blank, I realized like it's kind of dangerous territory, especially like when we hear it, like, just get over it, just do this. Just, it's not that big of a, you know, like it's, it's really dangerous to get into that territory because it assumes you can just like instantly get over things and stuff. So, um, that's where your compassionate inquiry. I was thinking of that when you said, you know, people were telling like, just move on or whatever, like that. That's and how, and how triggered people get when they hear that. Right. So I was, I was at my parents' yeah. house last week and I was telling them, like, I went in to try to get LASIK for the second time in my life. And for, for one reason or another, my body just freaks out and I'm like not able to get it. And my partner was there and everything. And um, you know, it's like, I took the Valium and I came back all like woozy, but I didn't end up getting the <laughs> surgery. And so immediately my dad's like, you just need to be strong and like, go to my doctor and like, you know, just don't think about it. And like, and I'm just there like observing. And I'm like, if this was like five or six years ago, I would have gotten so triggered by his response, but now I yeah. can just see it for what it is. And it's like, it's a dad wanting to help. That's really all it is. Totally. It's kind of and, cool because it gives you like subtitles where you're like, this is what's actually happening. I don't mm-hmm. need to respond. <laughs> yeah. And it was just like cute that he cared enough to like, you know, instantly he went into that mode of like, just be so strong. Cool. Like, think of this, think of that. And I'm like, I'm just thinking, I'm like, if I could only do that, dad. Totally. And then I was watching my mom's response to this too, right? And so she goes, you know what? Like, not that I think about it when you had that little surgery on your elbow when you were 12, like you were actually really fighting the anesthesia, like more so than it was, you know, natural. And so maybe this is just, you know, some, not everybody is like ready to get LASIK and maybe it's not for everybody. So it's okay. And I was like, oh, that's such a sweet response. Yeah. Maybe, you know, I was like, I'll give it one more shot. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. No big deal. It's not the, you know, I still have my contact lenses and uh, my terrible vision, but that's totally fine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, join the club. I have like a negative eight. So I'm there with you. Um, But I think it's really beautiful that our parents also grow to our point, right? Like they start maybe when they're 18, but they also get older and they also go through this experience with us sometimes and separately. And um, we can come to a better place. Yeah. So you could tell my mom was just definitely more in tune with like the emotions that were coming up for me. Um, and and so, but it was interesting that I was able to like clearly observe that they had these two different responses and know what's going on and what's fueling them rather than like making it about me. And like, I think five or six years ago, I would have been like, you don't understand. And like, this is so hard. Not everything is so easy and blah, blah, blah. And it would have been like this humongous ordeal. Um, because I would have assumed that they're saying something about me being weak or not strong enough or not, you know, good enough or whatever, and all these sorts of things, but I don't have any of that inside of me anymore. And so we can have these conversations. And in fact, I'm going to have dinner with them right after this call. So, oh, um, awesome. yeah, how appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like there does, um, I'm even stepping out of that phase of where everything has to be a fight 
of like mm-hmm. standing up and like protesting against their parenting. And I think it's, I'm starting to wonder if it's just a natural part of everything, like the healing and moving forward and then just being truly at peace with who your parents are, not trying to change them. Like the beauty of it is that they gave you this life with the resources you have now, you know? So, um, but with all that, I know we're kind of coming to time. So the last question I had for you was, very existential. So when we look at the mission of Donder Brown, you know, it's about how do we heal and free ourselves from the tensions that come from being all these multiple identities and seeing different messages based on the cultures that we're a part of. Do you feel like you have, like, what has helped you free yourself from that? And do you feel like you're ba- your most best authentic self now? I'll answer the second question first. Yes. I am my most best authentic self. And I don't think that there's any other way to live life. If you haven't arrived at that point, like you have no idea what life has to offer. So I think that's like really important to put out there right away. The other part is I think what gives me a lot of comfort and strength and, you know, clarity is like looking back and seeing like every generation played their role. Mm-hmm. And so it's asking yourself, you know, like I have the Gita right behind me, right? So every generation, it teaches like this, every generation has a role to play. Every person has their own dharma. And, and you really have to like get into yours and do yours really well and, and be able to let go of any sort of expectations for uh, reward or punishment or, or like not do things for the outcome, but just doing them because it's the right thing to do. So trip trip round, you're going on a date and the person rings the doorbell early. What is the one thing you quickly put on or do to make yourself feel your sexiest self? I feel like I would pick up my dog Lena and then open the door because we're just such a cute pair together. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's a good way to melt away any tension. <laughs> um, if you had to guess attachment styles for TV characters, like I, I'm just curious what you would say. So if you don't know any of these folks, let me know. But um, Ross Geller from Friends, that seems to be one that people know. Uh, so I feel like it depended on the season. I think like initially he seemed very anxious and then he went into an avoidant stage and it might just, you know, have been the relationships he was in, but that, that would be my guess. Okay, cool. Um, what about in Indian matchmaking? I think her name is Apurva, the one who's a little like from Oh, she's, and... she's a lawyer? Yeah. Yeah, she's clearly avoided. Okay. <laughs> we did a whole cool, show cool. On, this on my <laughs> <Yeah>. Instagram. <laughs> oh, awesome. Who, like, I'm just curious, what else did you talk about? Yeah, so we talked about like who all these, um, you know, what their attachment styles probably were. And then we talked about the guy's mom who had a really big influence and like why she was doing whatever she was doing. So it was a lack of boundaries there, right? A lack of individuation um, and all that guilt he felt like, oh, my mom's blood pressure is going up. And like, no, like you can't actually force your mom's blood pressure to go up if her nervous system has been wired. She wired it to respond that way to your choices. Like that is her thing. And she needs to figure that out. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, have you watched the Mindy Project? No, I haven't. Okay, so we'll skip that one. Um, okay. What's another show that you watched recently that you're like, this is an interesting attachment style? 
Um, well, actually, so with my partner, I watched um, the movie The Fight Club, like uh-huh. just a few weeks ago. I can't believe I had never seen it. It was so good. <laughs> oh my God, you have to watch it. And there's this certain lines in the movie that like I just love. There was this one scene where the main character expressed it. He's like, we are a generation of men raised by women and women only or something like that. So you can get an understanding that their fathers were absent in their childhood. Mm. And, and so they're all carrying this huge father wound from the absence of their father. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I'm like blown away by that. And now I really need to watch it because I know it's a classic. Yeah. Um, I'm also curious at any point after, if you watch the show Sex Life, would love to analyze with you because it is ripe for this type of analysis. Plus also really fun to make fun of. Um, anyway, your dream retirement destination. I probably go back to India. Oh, love it. When you're stumped making sense of a feeling or emotion, what do you do to better understand it? I usually meditate. Beautiful. And what is the most basic thing that you do? Pumpkin spice lattes, you know. Oh, I was going to be like, (laughs) analyze text. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is basic. (laughs) (laughs) Like my friends will like send me paragraphs of like what they're thinking or they're feeling. And then I'll like, I'll go right to it. And they're like, damn it, you're so good. (laughs) I'm like, I'm like, isn't this the reason you send this to me? (laughs) Yeah. This is also my job. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But Sabrina, thank you so much for your time. I, I was like nerding out completely and I could talk to you for hours. So thank you for sharing your wisdom, your stories, your experiences. You are a wealth of knowledge. And I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. And thank you for doing what you do. I think it's so important to talk about all these 